Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. You want to go ahead and find your seats. We will go ahead and get started. I hope everybody had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, We didn't meet last Wednesday, but uh, welcome back to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, As always, we are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we come to Matthew 5.13. And the title of our lesson, as you can see, is the salt of the earth. Let's read our verse. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That is a rhetorical question, by the way. It it cannot be restored. Therefore, Jesus said, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, For the past few weeks, we've been going through uh, verses 3 through 12, and we've been talking about the Beatitudes. And I've I've reiterated over and over again that the Beatitudes describe the character of a Christian. But tonight, we kind of start a new and fresh section of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to kind of move away from a description of the character of a Christian, and we're going to move to a description of the purpose of of a uh, a Christian. You see, you cannot be a, a Christian in isolation. You can have all these characteristics of a Christian, but the fact is that we live in a family. We live in a community. Uh, we, we interact with people in school. We interact with people on the job. We, we, we interact with people socially. So the question for us as, as Christians is, how do we interact with the world uh, around us? What kind of relationships do we have with the world? Now, if you think about this as a pendulum, the pendulum can kind of swing all the way to the left and all the way to the right. For example, if you, the pendulum can go all the way one way and you'll find a group of people there that says, oh, as Christians, we need to be completely separate from the world. And they'll look at verses like 2 Corinthians 6.17, where the Bible says, uh, Therefore come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. So for, for 2,000 years, you've seen the stuff like this. For example, the first monks went out and built monasteries. And they moved out into, these, into the wilderness. And they moved into these monasteries and separated themselves from the world. And they lived these very austere lifestyles. You still see it today with groups like the Amish who completely separate themselves uh, from anything to do with society or, or, or culture. So that would, be, that would be the extreme on one side of the pendulum. Now, on the other side of the pendulum, it would go the other way, and you would have a group that says, oh, no, no, we don't need to be separate. In fact, we should mimic the world in order to reach them for Jesus. And they would look at uh, scriptures, for example, 1 Corinthians 9.22, where Paul says, I become all things to all men 
that by all means I might save or reach some. And so what you have is you end up with churches that play secular music. And if you don't know that's out there, it is. Uh, you'll end up with a preacher that gets up and, and throws out a cuss word every once in a while just because he wants the congregation to know that I'm just like you. And so you'll end up with believers that uh, uh, consume the same entertainment, they drink the same beer, they, they, uh, uh, they wear the same clothes as the world. You can't really tell them apart. And so you've got both sides of this pendulum or both sides of the extreme. Now, one side would say to you, well, we're emphasizing holiness. And the other would say, well, we're emphasizing evangelism. We want to reach people for Christ. Now, here's the thing. They both miss the mark. Neither one of those are, are right. Now, don't get me wrong. There are really practical issues that you and I have to wrestle with as Christians. Okay, very practical things. What does, you know, one side would say you can't watch any movies. And the other side would say, well, you can watch any movie you, you want to. Well, you know, the, 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 the answer is probably somewhere, somewhere in the middle, right? Same thing with music. Should I kid, send my kids to public school? Should I not send them to public school? Should I make them go to a Christian college or a secular college? Should I attend parties? Should I drink? How should I dress? In, in other words, how do I mix with unbelievers? I've even heard of Christians that won't send their kids to youth group because there will be unbeliever, unbelieving kids there. So they won't even send them to youth group. So th these are real practical issues that you and I have to work out in our in our life. So this is kind of what we're talking about here to tonight is what should the church's relationship look uh, like with the world? And of course, what we want to know is what does the Bible say? Now, the Bible deals with this in a lot of different ways. For example, Jesus said in John 17, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. In other words, you've got to live in the world. You've got to build a house. You're going to get married. You're going to have children. You've got to pay your taxes. You've got to get a job. You're going to live in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not like them. You're not of the same nature. You're not of the same substance. Peter calls us strangers and pilgrims. Uh, Paul in Philippians 3 says we are citizens of heaven. The, the idea here with these types of scriptures, think for a moment about yourself going to a, a, a foreign country to work for a while. You move over to this foreign country, but this is your home, right? And you know, I'm going to go over there for a while, but I'm coming back home. Well, while you're in that country, you've got to have shelter. You've got to have food. You've got to have a job. You've got to pay taxes. But you always, in the back of your mind, you never settle. You never completely go 100% because you know you're going home. This is the idea that, that these type of scriptures bring to us, that this world is not our home. We never buy into the world's ways because we're, there's, there's another place waiting for us. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because this is the subject that Jesus is clearly, clearly dealing with in Matthew 5.13. He's dealing with this. What is our relationship to the world? What is our purpose here in this world? And he does it in an, just using an incredible metaphor. An incredible metaphor. It, it always shocks me what a great... The word great doesn't even, doesn't even describe how, what kind of communicator he is. How much he can say in just a few words. In fact, in just seven words, 
Jesus is going to describe the Christian's purpose in this world. And at the same time, he's going to imply some really important truths about the world around us. And he's going to do it with seven simple words. Those words are this. You, Christian, you alone, Christian, are the salt of the earth. Now, that's the metaphor. Now, what does it mean? Well, to understand this metaphor, we need to talk about salt because you can see basically uh, that that's the, the main thing. Now, probably most people in this room mention the word salt. You immediately think of that little salt shaker that you picked up at Thanksgiving and you, you know, you put on your food. But salt is so much more than that. So let's talk about it. Now, we live in a really incredible age. I don't think sometimes we understand how different our life is compared to literally the thousands of years that people have lived on this planet um, before us. We live in an age where if you want food, you go to the grocery store, you pick it up and you take it home. And if you want to preserve it, you open your refrigerator and you put it in. We don't have to worry about it, right? We, we've got ice, we've got refrigerators. But you got to remember in the, uh, back in the first century when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, there's no grocery stores. There's no, uh, there's no uh, uh, refrigeration systems. There's no ice. There's nothing like that. In fact, in the first century, there were two purposes for salt. Now, the first one is preserving food. Like I said, we don't even think about this anymore. We don't even have to worry about it anymore. But back then, they, they did. In fact, prior to the invention of canning, which was in 1795, which, by the way, that was Napoleon, whether you know it or not. Napoleon offered a reward of 12,000 francs to anybody that could come up with a way to preserve food, and this guy did it. And it made its way over to America around 1821. Uh, but so, so canning has been around for 200 plus years. But prior to that, there was only one way to preserve food, and that was by using salt. In fact, preserving food with salt goes back way before anybody started writing down uh, records. Our ancestors uh, salted meat, they salted fish, they salted vegetables, they even salted uh, fruit. Is there anybody here that's had salt mullet? There's a few, look at you. Anybody ever actually salted mullet? Wow, how about that? That's pretty good. Uh, I've never done it, but I know there were stories, I've heard stories of uh, here in Walker County, uh, back in the run, when the mullet would run, they'd go down to the same yard, catch a bunch of mullet, and they'd salt them in barrels. And, you'd, and they'd take them up to Georgia and sell them, or you'd take them home and put them up, and you'd eat them over the winter. That's how you preserved your fish. So salt's ability to preserve food, what most people don't realize is, is really uh, contributed greatly to the founding of civilization. Um, it eliminated dependence on the seasonal ability of food. It, you know, it, it allowed you to take food and make it last for weeks and sometimes months. It made it possible to transport. I mean, think about without salt, how would you transport food? How would you take food with you? The people that went west or the, or the Roman armies that marched to conquer uh, the, the Roman Empire. That's how they kept their food was through salt. So salt was really the basis of building these great uh, foundations of civilization. It was incredibly valuable commodity back in those uh, 
days. In fact, even at times, it was considered a form of currency. It was that valuable. In fact, the word salary in English comes from the Latin word for salt. They actually would pay people salary in salt. I read somewhere in one of the things I was studying that back in the colonial days, uh, they used 40 pounds of salt per person per year. That's how much salt it took to keep a family going, just, uh, again, to preserve your, your food. Now, what's interesting here is, okay, we, we all know salt preserves food, but does anybody know how it, it works? I asked Kathy this the other day, and somehow she knew. I, I, did, I had no clue, but, but she knew. Salt acts as a preservative by basically drawing water out of your food. So if you apply salt to meat, basically what it does is it extracts or, or dries that meat out. And this is really a very clever use for salt because if anybody knows meat rots, let's just take meat as an example. The reason that meat rots is because every piece of meat has these little microorganisms, these little bacteria in them. They're, they're in it when the animal's alive. They're still in it when the animal dies and they cut up the meat. It gets transferred from other things. So every piece of meat has these little microorganisms in it. And the reason meat rots, and this is pretty disgusting, but the little organisms uh, eat the meat and then they basically leave their waste products behind. So when you see all that stuff growing on the meat and the meat begin to get mushy and that's just... That's like organism poop or something like that. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of disgusting in case you didn't get what that was going on. But here's the thing. These little organisms are living creatures and like any living creature, they need water. So when you apply salt to food and you extract that water, the bacteria can't live. They can't, certainly can't thrive. And so it makes your food last much, much uh, longer. Now, that's one purpose of salt that's been around for literally uh, thousands of years. The second purpose of salt in the first century was exactly what it is today, and that is to season food. People in the first century uh, put, uh, put uh, salt on their food to enhance the taste and enhance the flavor, uh, just like we do um, today. Now, let's come back to what Jesus said. Knowing those two things, Jesus says, you, Christian, you alone, you are the salt of the earth. So what, do, what does he trying to teach us? What important truths do we learn? Well, first thing I want you to see is what does that tell us about the world? We'll, we'll look in a minute what that tells that us about you and I. But first, what does that tell, if we're the salt of the earth or the salt of the world, what does that tell us about the world? I wanna, to, to, I wanna make sure you get this, because this is important. And I actually put a little, I think I put a little stamp up there. Yeah. I, I wanna make sure you understand it. I wanna go back in time for a moment to the late 18th century. Um, uh, Darwin in 1859 publishes The Origin of the Species. Okay, And everybody knows the origin of the species teaches evolution. And that theory, the evolution theory, takes the world by storm. Now, you've got to understand, before that, for literally thousands of years, people had believed that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nobody ever doubted that. God created the heavens and the earth. And then this book is published in 1859 that said, oh, no. 
No, God didn't do that. Evolution did this. And it took, it took academia, it took everybody by storm. The intellectuals and the philosophers and the poets and the professors and the world leaders, see, all of a sudden they never had another reason. They never had an explanation for why we were here. And all of a sudden they had one and they didn't need God anymore. And boy, they loved it. They loved it. Everybody jumped on board the evolutionary bandwagon. And what they began to see is they said, oh, okay, we've been evolving. You know, we came out of this primordial ooze and, and we started as cavemen and then we got a little smarter and we got a little smarter and we've been evolving all the way up. Now, here we are at the, at the, in the ni late 19th century, the end of the 1800s, and in their mind, we've reached, we finally figured out why we're here. We finally figured out our purpose. And they really believed, if you go back and you read some of their writings, they truly believed that they were on the edge of a golden era. In their mind, mankind was advancing upwards. We'd reached a certain stage in our development. Paradise was just around the corner. They literally believed, if you go read their writings, there's not going to be any more wars. There's not going to be any more diseases. We're going to, we're going to eliminate all suffering. The 20th century is going to be absolutely amazing. The 20th century is going to be a paradise on earth. Instead, 231 million people died at the hands of other human beings. That's not dying by floods or dying by uh, natural disasters or dying by disease. That's dying in wars. That's dying in conflicts. That's, that's dying by being uh, forced starvation. The 20th century uh, brings up men like Lenin and Mao and Stalin and Hitler. By the way, the, that idea that mankind is going all the way up and we're just progressing, we went off a cliff. And it was proved to be a fallacy. But you see, the Bible has always exposed the truth about mankind. The Bible says our heart is desperately wicked. The Bible says there's, God says there's none good, no, not one. You can see this in the Bible, by the way. Just go back and read it. It begins right after the fall in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They have two sons, Cain and Abel, and one of them kills the other. Cain kills Abel. Cain then has a son named Lamech, and Lamech kills another man. So their sons were murderers. Their grandsons were were murderers. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the earth and he makes this statement that every imagination of the thoughts of a man's heart was only evil continually. I don't see that going up, do you? What you see is you see Adam and Eve created perfect and then sin comes and we're going down. In fact, it gets to the point where God looks at the earth and says, I got to destroy it. And I'm going to save eight people, Noah's three sons and their, their wives. And so they start all over again. And, and by the way, uh, they start all over again. And guess what happens? Uh, you get to Genesis chapter 11 and um, uh, men, mankind has now repopulated, but they don't listen to God. God said, go across the earth and populate the earth. And they said, no, we're going to stay right here and build a tower. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And so God has to confuse their language and he has to scatter them. 
Again, they had a second chance. But instead of going up, they just went down again. It seems like we never learn our lesson. You read down through the Bible and you see where God wipes out cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. He has to end up wiping out certain nations because their depravity and their evil gets so bad. So what you see in the history of the world is our history trends toward decay, not progress. So let's come back to our metaphor that Jesus gives us, Matthew 5, 13. You, Christian, you are the salt of the earth. Now, what does that imply about the world? I'll tell you what it implies. It implies that the world is like a piece of meat. You take a piece of meat and you go put it out on, on, your, on your island and you let it sit there. And what's it going to do? It's going to rot. You see, the world is the same way. Leave the world alone. Just leave the world to itself. And it doesn't get better and better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse if it's not treated with a preservative. And, and you see, in, in the same way that meat is full of these little microorganisms. The world is full of sin. And unless that sin is checked, it will rot the world from the inside out. By the way, that's what the James 1.15 says. Sin, when it is fully grown, always brings forth death and decay. So the natural state of the world, you know, we think, or a lot of people think, well, if you just, you know, the world, there's a lot of good people out there, and, and if they would just do the right thing, no. No, Jesus is telling us in this metaphor that, that, the, that the, the world is like food, that unless it's preserved, it will naturally rot. And that is a, an incredible truth about the world. Now, with all that in mind, what does this metaphor teach us about our purpose as Christians? Well, here's the first thing. It teaches us is that believers are the salt that preserves our society from moral decay. I want to read Romans 1, 28 to 32. This is a description, by the way, of a society, of a people, when God pulls back. Listen to this. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They're filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice, they are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they continue to do them, but they approve of those who practice them. That's what happens to society without the intervention of God. That's what just naturally happens to society when the Spirit of God pulls back. So when a nation or a culture or a society does not acknowledge the one true God, its institutions will rot from within. Its religions will rot because they are creating gods that are made in their own image. The family will rot because people lack love. Our businesses and our government will rot because people lack ethics. See, this is, this is just the natural decay that happens in the world. And in the midst of all this, Jesus points to us and says, you're the salt. 
You're the salt. All of this rot going on in, in our culture, and our society, you are the preservative. You are. That's, that's your whole purpose. This is what you're supposed to do. You see, as Christians, we are, whether we know it or not, we're fighting against sin. We're fighting against sin in the world. Effectively, we are acting as a preservative. Now, how do we do that practically, right? That's a, that's a great truth. But how do we do it every single day? I want to give you three things. Number one, believers preserve society by just being a part of it. Let me say it again. Believers preserve society by just being a part of it. You go back to Genesis 18. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has a conversation with uh, Abraham. And Abraham says to God, he says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And, and they had this conversation and Abraham says to God, he says, God, if you can find 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare it? And God said, absolutely. If I can find 50 people in the city, I'll spare the city. I won't destroy it. Abraham asked again, well, what if you, well, if you can find 40? If you can find 40 people in that city... Will you spare it? God says, absolutely. If I can find 40 people. He goes on down the line in Genesis 18, 32. Abraham says, well, what if you can find 10? If you can just find 10 righteous people in that city, will you destroy it? And watch what God said. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. But he couldn't find 10. You see, God holds back His wrath whenever there's a righteous remnant. And even, by the way, when He does decide that He has to destroy a city or He has to destroy a nation or, or whatever the case may be, He always removes that righteous remnant as He did with Noah and as He did with, with Lot. You see, believers in this world are the righteous remnant, which is whether society knows it or not, we are actually protecting them from God's destructive wrath just by being a part of this culture. Number two, believers preserve society by praying for it. By the way, we're going to do this tonight before we leave. I want to I read you a scripture which I think is absolutely incredible. This is Ezekiel 22. God is angry with Israel because Israel has just gone off the deep end. They're not, I mean, they're, they're in terrible shape. Their, their society is just gone to the depths of depravity. And God makes a statement and he talks about her religion. He talks about her government and he talks about her people. Here he is talking about the religion of Israel. Listen to this. He says, her priests have done violence to my law and they've profaned my holy things. They make no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the clean and the unclean, and they disregard my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Just this past week, uh, I read a, a, an article about a seminary in England where a pastor got up on Sunday to teach the, to preach the message, and his message was that Jesus was a transsexual. They are profaning my name. They are profaning my name. God goes on. Her princes, this is the government he's talking about. 
Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash. They cover for them, seeing false vision and divining lies for them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. You see, we've got a government that's promoting all of this stuff like homosexuality, and they're able to go into churches and find pastors who will cover for them and whitewash them and say, Thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not said anything like that. You're seeing this happening today. And then he talks about the people. He says, The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and the needy, and they've extorted from the sojourner without justice. The government is corrupt. The religions are corrupt. The people are corrupt. Now listen to what he says. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. God says, I look for one man to stand in front between me and the nation and said, God, have mercy. God, don't destroy us. Have mercy on this people. God said, I look for one man to do that, just to stand up and ask me to show mercy. And I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. You see, like Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, God is looking for Christians who will stand up and ask for mercy for America. He's looking for Christians who will pray for those in authority over them, for our presidents and our kings. He's, he's looking for people who will pray for holiness to rise up in this nation, for the spread of the gospel, for the harvest, for the church to be the salt and the light. I'm salt one man to stand in the breach, and I could not find any. You see, God, we preserve our country, we preserve our nation, we preserve our culture, society, our world by praying for them, by asking God for mercy. The third thing we do is we preserve our society. We are salt by promoting righteousness. This is just some practical stuff. We live our lives, we practice godly behavior. We care for the weak and the vulnerable. We walk in honesty and integrity. We champion righteous causes. We condemn sin. We teach and preach truth. Just, just standard stuff, right? Nothing, nothing do, but we're not scared of it. We don't, we don't copy what they do. We walk in truth. We walk in holiness while we're out in our schools, while we're out at our work, while we're in our families, on our jobs, wherever we are. We just walk as godly men and women. And something happens. You ever seen a Christian walk in a room? You ever been a bunch of men in a room and they're all cussing and telling dirty jokes? And a godly man walks in the room. Guess what happens? Something changes. Something changes. There's something about a godly, righteous man that changes. He's being salt. Doesn't even know he's being salt. He's just being a godly man. But, but something happens in the room. Something happens in our culture. Something happens in our society when Christians be Christians. When we just are not ashamed to be Christians. See, the question is, are you being salty? 
Whatever environment that God has put you in, are you making a difference? And you walk in a room, does it change? Do people act different when you're around? And that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Let me tell you, we should be shocked, absolutely shocked tonight, but not at the condition of the world. You see, the world is supposed to decay. That's, that's its natural thing to do. Leave it alone, it'll rot. That shouldn't shock us. Folks, what should shock us is the lack of a preserving influence from the church. That's what should shock us. You see, the fact is, it shouldn't be a surprise when you go into a culture, you go in society, and you see the depths of depravity. Let me tell you, that what that should tell us one thing, that the church isn't doing their job. And by the way, don't, let's just don't put it on the church. The church is made up of individuals like you and me. And when you see our culture doing what our culture is doing, that should tell every single one of us here we're not doing our job. We're not fulfilling our purpose. Now, I can't go to, I'm not going to go to Washington, D.C. and do anything up there, but I can sure make a difference in my family. I can sure make a difference in my job. I can sure make a difference in my church. I can make a difference in my community. I can make a difference in the sphere of influence that God has placed me in. But the question is, are we making a difference? So the first thing Jesus means by being the salt of the earth is that we are preservative. The second thing he means is that believers bring flavor to society. I love grits. Anybody here love grits? But let me tell you, if you don't put salt on grits, you might as well eat glue. Right? I mean, you might as well just eat paste. I mean, they're, they're, they're tasteless. They're useless. But you put some salt and butter and bacon and cheese and all, all of a sudden they get really, really good, right? Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. When he says you are the salt of the earth, you see what he's saying? He's saying without you, this life is bland. Culture is bland. Culture is like grits without salt. Now, that's an interesting thing because, see, it's the world that often points at us and says, you guys don't know how to have fun. You guys don't know how to enjoy yourself. You, you guys don't have any zest for life. But see, what Jesus is saying is, is the exact opposite is true. That it's, it's only Christians who really know what life is all about. It's only Christians who really know what it means to live. In fact, you can validate this. The fact that, that re- society is like tasteless food, you can validate this. See our culture's thirst for drugs. Our culture's thirst for entertainment. Our culture's thirst for pleasure. Why? Because their life is so bland and so tasteless. The only way they can feel alive is by these temporary pleasures. That's the only way they feel anything is to chase all these little temporary things because their life is like grits without salt. But we don't need that. I don't need drugs. I don't need all that stuff. I just, I just love life. I've got Jesus. What else do I need? He lives in me. My life is exciting and fulfilling and I don't need all that stuff. You see, our faith in Christ is what adds the flavor. We are the salt of the earth. Now, I need to cover one more thing before we close. Those first seven words, don't you think that's an incredible metaphor? I mean, the seven words, the truth that's packed into that is is absolutely incredible. 
But that verse has more than seven words. Let's read it again, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? As I said, that's a rhetorical question. It cannot be restored. In fact, Jesus said it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, when you read that, you are salt. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, is that saying that I can lose my salvation? Is that saying that, that a Christian be, can become unsalty? Is it, is it saying that I can lose my salvation? Well, first of all, no, you can't. Because Jesus dwells in me, and Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit dwells in me, which God says is a guarantee of my inheritance to come. Neither one of them will ever leave me. I cannot lose my salvation. So what then does Jesus mean? Well, here's something very interesting. I asked Kathy this question. Did you know that salt lasts forever? Salt cannot lose its essential properties. In fact, pure salt will last forever. I read several articles that says if you go to your pantry and they, you see a, one of those use-by dates on salt, just ignore it. That They have to put it on there because of some law or something like that. But pure salt will never lose its saltiness. It lasts forever. Now that, of course, raises the question then, well, what does Jesus mean if salt loses its saltiness? Well, it turns out that the only way salt can lose its saltiness is if you mix it with other minerals. Pure salt lasts completely forever. Just sit it right there. It'll never degrade. It'll always be salty unless, unless you mix it with other minerals and it degrades that way. The salt is still salt, but now you got all this other junk mixed into it. When that happens, by the way, it's not, you can't put it on your food anymore because it's got all these other bad minerals in it. You can't put it on your garden or on your yard because the salt will kill the vegetation. So guess what they do with it? It typically would be thrown on a set of steps so people wouldn't slip. Or they'd take it out on a road or a path so people could walk on it. By the way, same thing we do today. In other words, it cannot lose its properties, but if it gets so mixed up with other minerals where it's no good for food, it's no good for anything else, they'll just take it out and they'll just scatter it on paths where, you know, where people can, can walk on it. And we still do that today. Listen, a true believer cannot lose their essential nature as salt. Cannot do it. Because, again, what makes us salty is Christ, and He's not going to leave us. However, you can certainly, certainly lose your effectiveness as a, uh, as a preservative and as a flavor enhancer by mixing with the world. You mix enough of the world in with you and you literally become useless. 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or things in the world. Paul says in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to the world. There's all these warnings in the Bible. Don't, don't get your head lifted up and start looking for those things and trying to acquire those things and mixing those things into your life. Why? Because you lose your saltiness. By the way, another word for that type of person is a worldly believer. 
A worldly believer is salt that has lost its saltiness. They're a believer, but they're so mixed up with the world and they're so copying the world and they're so conformed to the world that they're not preserving anything. They're not adding flavor to anything. They're not leading people to God. In fact, let me read this. This is Jesus in Matthew 12, 30. And I want you to watch what he says. He said this, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now that, Jesus is drawing a line. And he says, you're on one side or you're on the other. You're either acting as a preservative or yet you're contributing to the rot. You're, you're either adding flavor to this life or you're just adding to the blandness. You're gathering or you're scattering, one or the other. You see, there's no in-between. I think the question that we have, I think what Jesus wants us to see is your purpose on this earth is to preserve and enhance. Preserve and enhance. That's who you are is salt. Fulfill your purpose. That's what you're here for. If you're not doing that, what's the point? As a Christian, if you're not doing that, what are you good for? Are we being salty? Are we fulfilling our purpose? Hey, I want to do one thing before we leave tonight. If you can, join me at the front. We're going to pray for our nation. You know, uh, I, I was just really convicted about this today, that the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. Get on up and come on. Y'all ain't got to sit there. Um, we're to pray for our leaders. We're to pray, to pray for those in authority over us. One of the ways that we act as a preservative for our culture and for our nation is to pray. Now, I would love it if every church across America was praying every day. But again, we can only do what we can do, right? We can only do what's within our sphere of, of influence. Y'all act like somebody's going to bite you up here. Y'all so, so slow getting down here. Hey, don't let me be the only one that prays. Please, let's lift up our voice and let's pray. Uh, let's pray for our country. Let's, uh, I would encourage you as you leave here tonight, go back out tomorrow, begin to pray and ask, what can I do in my family? What can I do at my work? What can I do in my school to be salt? What can I do to preserve? What can I do to make a difference? But tonight, we start by, by praying. Father... Lord, first of all, forgive us for all the times that we have not prayed for our leaders. Um, it's so hard sometimes when, our, when, when a leader doesn't match up with what you believe. It's so easy to, to just hate on them and criticize them and, and think badly of them. But the Bible doesn't say only pray for those who agree with you. It says pray for those in authority over you. So tonight, Lord, I pray for our president and our vice president. I pray for President Biden, Lord. Father, I, 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 his, I believe with all my heart that his mortal soul is in danger. God, I, I just believe that because he wouldn't do the things he do, does if he knew you as his Savior. So I ask you tonight, God, his time is running out, Father. Some way, somehow, have mercy on him. 
some way, somehow have mercy on his soul, God. Show him who you really are. God, give him wisdom to make good decisions, not bad decisions. Father, help our, our vice president, God, to do the same thing. Help our leaders in Congress, God, to make good decisions, godly decisions, righteous decisions. That's gonna, it's gonna help our country to, to turn back to where we need to be. We don't expect them, we don't expect ungodly people to be godly. We don't expect that, Lord. But God, we know that you can make a difference. We know that you can make a difference in this country. So we pray for them because they are the ones making our decisions, God. We pray for the harvest. We pray for our churches. We pray for ourselves. God, help us to be salt. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be walk in a room and not be ashamed to be Christians. Not to be ashamed to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. We thank you for all you do. We thank you for this incredible, incredible, incredible word that you left us. It is un, it is, it's just so, God, it just, even today, some 2,000 years later, it has everything in it that we need for righteousness and godliness, God. What, what an incredible thing. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.